Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Life Church Canton podcast. I'm your new host, Jared Van Voorst, and I'm one of the pastors at Life Church. If you're used to listening to this, you've heard Sam Parham for a little over a year now, and he is off to another great adventure. But I want to thank Sam for his hard work and dedication in getting this podcast up and running. I hope to keep that same level of excellence going forward as I move forward as your new host. I'm excited to be with you, and I want to thank you for listening. Today, you're going to hear the start of the second half of our series on Ephesians. I had the pleasure of kicking us off by looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. But before we get started, I can't encourage you enough to subscribe to this podcast, but also share it with others if you think it's meaningful to you. It may have an impact on somebody else and be an encouragement to them. We know that life is hard and complex sometimes, but we truly believe that Jesus is our hope, not just for our future, but for today as well. Lastly, if you're part of Life Church and you give to us financially, I want to thank you for investing in the work that we get to be a part of. It truly makes a difference. If you're not part of Life Church, but you'd like to contribute to this ongoing effort, I want to invite you to visit our website at lifechurchcanton.org/give. And I want to thank you again for deciding to contribute. So without further ado, here's the sermon for today. Well, hello and welcome to Life Church. My name is Jared and I'm one of the pastors here and I'm so glad to be together. For those of you who are watching live right now, it's good to see you. I can't actually see you, but I'm assuming you're on the other side of that screen and it's good to be with you. For those of you who are going to watch this or listen to this later, uh, maybe online or on the podcast, so, thank you, uh, so thankful that you have decided to join us as well. For those of you who are watching live right now, would you please do me a favor? And go ahead and share this experience because it's so important, the impact that it has. You might not even know this, but when you share this, other people are exposed to this experience. They might not have a faith community that they're a part of, and so they might decide in this moment to join our faith community, at least for a little while. Some even have decided to join our church without ever being in this building. They were exposed to an online worship gathering and decided to join our church. That's incredible that we get to to be a part of that. So your contribution makes an impact in this process. Also, if you are watching online right now on Facebook specifically, we want you to comment. We want you to engage with the service. If you have questions, if you have comments, if you want to say hello to somebody, if somebody's new here, uh, we want to be able to interact. And I would say this again, if you are new, let us know. Say I'm new in the comments or you can fill out one of the connection cards online and we would love to get in touch with you so that you're not doing this alone. I have a question for you if you're watching right now and maybe you're watching later, you can think about this question, but how many of you have ever test driven a car, specifically a brand new car? How many of you have ever had that opportunity? Go ahead and raise your hand. I, I can't see you, but just do it anyway for fun. Okay. That's an incredible experience, isn't it? Test driving a brand new car. Now, Take, take yourself back to that moment when you got to test drive a car, or any car for that matter. How many of you, you decided before going into the passenger seat, or sorry, the driver's seat, you, you actually instead went into the passenger seat, you opened up the glove compartment, and you, you took out the manual uh, to the car, and you decided you're going to read from beginning 
to end, how everything in this car works. I want to know everything about this car, inside and out. And you decided you were going to read it cover to cover before ever driving the car. Yeah, maybe like three of us, I'm sure, maybe. And, and if, if you're one of those three, kudos to you. We admire your responsibility and your safety. But for most of us, my guess is that we never did anything like that, right? Like, we know how to drive a car. We, we want to get into it. We want to turn the key or push the button because you don't even turn a key in new cars anymore. You want to drive the car. Who cares about the manual? You know how to drive a car. You know the basics. You know the gist of it. And so you want to get in and you want to drive the car. You want to feel the power of the engine. You want to feel how it handles. You want to do all the things that it comes with driving a new car, right? But here's the thing. Here's the thing. It, unless, of course, it's a, a one of those ugly Teslas. I've probably just offended a handful of people right now, but uh, you probably have a basic understanding of how things work until, until you don't, especially when it's a newer car. If you've been driving maybe a little beat up thing, but now you've got a brand new car, things are maybe just a little bit different. So let's say you, you test drive the car, you like it, you decide to buy the car, you drive it off the lot, you've been driving around for a while, but all of a sudden an indicator light comes on. You're not sure what that indicator light means. You, you didn't have that indicator light in the last 1985 Chevrolet Chevette that you owned. Now this is a brand new car, and you're not sure what that indicator light means. You need to go to your manual to check it out. You need to look for the indicator light section and, and realize, oh, that, that means that. And so you need to know what it means so that you can know how to address the problem before it gets any worse. Why am I talking about this? I'm talking about cars and manuals. See, this is how I think in terms of illustrations, especially as it comes to, when it comes to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. See, there's, there's something that's going on in this letter in the first three chapters, in chapters one, two, and three. It's almost like this, this manual for how the thing works. It's a a manual for how God works, what he does, the kind of God that he is. It's a manual for how you work, and you work in a very specific way. See, the reason you work and the way that you work is because of Jesus and only because of Jesus. It's almost as though Jesus is the manual for how you operate, for how you work. And not only that, but the Holy Spirit is a part of this as well. The Holy Spirit is like the key that turns that ignition and gives the car power and is able to drive you. See, we learn in Paul's letter in chapters 1, 2, and 3 how God works and how you work and how you work in relationship to God and with God. But there's more. There's more. See, we've talked about this idea that you have been chosen in Christ. But now Paul is about to turn the corner here in the letter. There's, there's more to it. See, it's not just about how God works and how you work, but it's now how about you all work together. See, you're forming this new community that is centered around how God works and how you work, but now you all have to work together. And there's major implications for this. If I could go back to the car illustration, the metaphor for just a second, it's almost as if this Ephesian church, they they test drove the car, they bought it, they drove it off the lot, and now Paul is preparing them for the potential or the inevitable complications that come with driving a car, with being the church, if you will. 
There's going to be some indicator lights that come on that you might not recognize, that you may have never seen before, and you're going to have to pay attention to those indicator lights so that you know how to address the thing so it doesn't get any worse. This is what Paul is doing here. See, I want you to think about it like this as we turn this corner. Think about driving again. Like when you drive a new car, any old car, when you're first learning how to drive, you maybe start off in a a church parking lot or a high school parking lot, or maybe you start out in your quiet little neighborhood or something like that, and it's, it's easy. Maybe you're about the only one that's on the road at the time, and you can kind of slowly figure things out. But can you remember, can you remember the first time that you merged onto the interstate? Onto like a major busy highway where there's cars going like 75 miles an hour, 80 miles an hour, and there's all kinds of traffic that's going on. How many of you can remember that moment, that first time that you had to merge on? It's stressful, isn't it? It's like, wait, do I, do I accelerate? Do I decelerate? Do I like wait for that person to come? Like, what, are, are they going to let me come into this lane? Or like, what lane do I do? There, there's lots of questions the first time you do it. It's a little bit nerve-wracking. And and especially when you're coming onto this road, there's other cars there too, right? Like you have to think about them and you're like, I don't don't know how that person drives. I don't know who they are. I don't know if their car is in good shape or tip-top shape and and everything's going well for them. I don't know what they're going to do. I kind of have to guess. I kind of have to trust that they're going to stay in their lane or if I want to merge over into this lane that this car is going to let me in. Like you have to think about all of these other things now as opposed to if you were just driving in a parking lot all by yourself driving in a quiet neighborhood. And then think about this. Think about the time, the first time, or maybe it's never happened to you, or maybe it will happen to you at some point, but the time that you're driving 75 miles an hour on an interstate, cars are on side to side, they're front and back, and then your indicator light comes on. What are you going to do in that moment? Are you going to reach over into the glove compartment when you're driving 75 miles an hour and reach for the manual to see what, what does that indicator light mean all the while you're, you're trying to drive at the same time? No, absolutely not. And so the stress level starts to rise. Is, 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 is this indicator light something urgent? Is it something I have to pay attention to right now in this moment or, or can I delay it? And, and the stress level rises. Maybe the road rage comes up and there's all kinds of potential for complications. It's scary. Things could potentially go wrong. Let me speak plainly for just a moment and get back to Paul's letter. See, what Paul is doing is saying, hey, you're new at this, church. People of Ephesus, you're new at this. You're new at understanding what you have been called to. You're new at understanding what Christ has done. You're new at learning how to do life, how to merge your life with other people's lives. And not just any people, but people from all different shapes and sizes, all different backgrounds, all different ethnicities in some cases, and even all different belief systems. And even some of those people have kept their belief systems guess what? You're merging onto a very busy, congested, fast-moving highway, and it's going to get messy. It's not going to be easy. There's going to be a lot of work. There's going to be a lot of things that you're going to have to pay attention to. Why? Because when you bring people of all different backgrounds and all different belief systems together as one, there naturally starts to be disagreement 
for who God is, for, for what life is ultimately supposed to look like, for what the church is supposed to be. It's going to be messy. Paul is turning a major corner in the letter. And he's got some very important things to say to them for how they are going to operate as this newly formed community, the church. I want to read a portion of that letter. It's in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all. He is in all and he is living through all. This is the corner, the turn that Paul makes. Now, everything that you've known, everything that you've seen in the manual for how God works and how you work is super important to understand now how you're all going to work together in order to be the church that God has called you to be. So let's break this down just a little bit. We'll go verse by verse. First of all, verse one, therefore, therefore, this is a big word that Paul uses in many of his letters, therefore. Whenever you're reading the Bible and you see the word therefore, it's usually an indication that you need to look backwards in order to see what the therefore is there for. You see what I did there? Hopefully. Therefore, I a prisoner, a prisoner. Now, if you've been with us for a while and you've been listening to this series on Ephesians, he actually starts the letter talking about the fact that he's a prisoner. He says it again here. Why does he feel this need to repeat himself to say, hey, just, just in case you forgot, I'm still a prisoner halfway through this letter. Not, nothing's changed about my circumstances. I'm still a prisoner. He's reminding them of this to remind them that he has a sense of authority to be able to speak into the potential or already hardships that they might be experiencing as a diverse body. He's a prisoner. He understands what it's like to be in hard circumstances. So he reminds them, therefore I, a prisoner, I beg you, I beg you, I implore you, I plead with you to live the life worthy of your calling. In other words, to live as though all that other stuff I said in chapters one, two, and three, live as though that's true. Act as though it's actually true because it actually is. Now live into that. Live into that new reality. That's all in verse one. There's probably more we could squeeze out of that, but I'm gonna keep on going. Verse two, always be humble and gentle. Humble and gentle. See, I think we could talk about humility and gentleness for the next year, the next two years, the next three years, 
for every week, for the next three years, we could talk about humility and gentleness, and it would still be relevant to whatever circumstances you and I are facing. I mean, think about just the last few weeks. Think about the last couple weeks and the racial injustice that we have been exposed to that's been going on in our nation and in our world, really. And, it, and just to be fair, it's not just the last couple weeks, but it's really more, more accurately the last 400 or 500 years in our history. Now it's just more televised. It's just more talked about, finally. We're being exposed to this, the racial injustice. What are we going to do with that? How are we as a church going to respond to it? Maybe, maybe even more importantly, it starts with me. How am I going to respond to it? Will I have the humility? Will I have the gentleness to become self-aware, to expose myself, to recognize, to acknowledge the ways in which I, I have been a beneficiary of my own white privilege? What's it going to take for somebody to tell me or for me to acknowledge the fact that I have benefited from systems that have been either rooted in or founded in white supremacy? Will I have humility, gentleness, patience even to listen? This is a big deal because it's not just for my own well-being, but it's also for the sake of getting to be a small part in joining together with a church that wants to shepherd us together towards the work, the necessary work of restorative justice. Will we have the humility and the gentleness to do so? Will we be patient with one another? See, I don't think this is just a socio-political issue. It is that, but it's a human issue, and therefore it's a gospel issue. I would even go as far as to say that this is one of the biggest indicator lights on the dashboard of the American church today. It is flashing red, blinking, dinging at us, trying to get our attention to say, deal with this. Deal with this issue. Otherwise, the car is going to break down. It's going to burn out. It's going to be destroyed. And I don't really mean a car. I mean the church. Now I recognize some of you watching or some of you listening right now may not agree with me. Some of you may not see it that way. Or at least maybe you don't think it's a priority indicator light on the dashboard of the American church. There's other things that we could deal with. Let me think about it this way. I mean, it'll illustrate it in this way. Some of you, 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 drive, you drive your cars and, and maybe an indicator light comes on. And maybe after a while, you're just like, you know what, I don't know what that means or I do know what it means and I'm just not gonna deal with it. Or it's gonna be really expensive for me to deal with that indicator light. And so you just don't deal with it. And you just keep on driving week after week, month after month, and this indicator light just stays on in your dashboard. Some of you do this right now. I had a friend back in Minnesota. He had this issue. It was an older car. His check engine light came on in his dashboard. 
and he just decided not to deal with it. He didn't want to deal with it for any variety of reasons. And ultimately, over time, what happened is he got so sick of seeing this indicator light because it just made him stressed out, the fact that he had to deal with this light. And so what he did instead is he cut a little piece of black electrical tape and he put it over the indicator light on his dashboard so that he could make himself feel better that he didn't have to deal with the issue in his car. Is this what we're doing with racial injustice? Are we just seeing the light, but ultimately choosing not, want, not wanting to deal with it? Church, I plead with you. I beg with you. Don't cut out a little piece of tape and cover up that light. Because even if you do, it doesn't mean that the issue is going to go away. In fact, it's probably even going to get worse if you don't take the car in and deal with it. And ultimately, the car is going to be destroyed. It's going to overheat. It's going to burn out. It's not going to work anymore. Again, I'm not just talking about a car. Now I'm talking about the church. Paul says this is important. And it's going to cost a lot. This is an indicator light that we have to pay attention to. But for, for me as a white man, I have to be willing to have the humility and gentleness and patience to walk this journey with you. It's going to be hard. So how do we do that? Well, Paul takes us into the next section of Scripture by saying, make allowance for each other. Make allowance for each other because of your faults. It, it, it's more accurate to say bear with one another in love, but Paul here says make allowance in the New Living Translation. And I actually like the reason why they chose to use that phrase, to make allowance. And in other words, it sort of assumes that there's going to be faults, that there's going to be things that go wrong, right? So you, you have to prepare for that. Make allowance for the things that are going to go wrong. Let me use the car illustration again. If you buy a new car and you drive it off the lot, immediately that car begins to depreciate. Even more so for Fords. I'm just kidding, I'm kidding, okay? I'm just, you know, trying to make light of it. But it's going to depreciate over time, right? What do you have to do? Well, over time, as you own this car, there's effort that goes into taking care of this car. Just little things that you have to do here and there to preserve the life of the car. You got to take it in and get an oil change from time to time. You got to rotate your tires. Some of you are like, what's rotating your tires? You can Google it after we're done here. Some of you, you, you got to wash your car, right? Not just to make sure that it's clean, but especially in Michigan winters, right? You get all that salt and that grime that gets on the paint. Well, eventually that's going to wear away the paint. Thank you. And so you got to wash it. you got to keep it clean so that you can preserve the life of the car. Well, this is a great segue into what Paul talks about in this next section. I'm getting really excited, so I'm losing my voice for some reason. Verse 3. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit. Make every effort. This isn't just something you, you wish for. You just hope for. This isn't just thoughts and prayers. 
right? You have to make an effort toward this work of unity, to be united in the Spirit. Make an effort. But here's, here's kind of the cool thing. He says, make every effort to keep yourselves united. So that, that assumes that there's already unity in place. And there's a reason for Paul saying that. Earlier on in chapter one, he says that you are all united with Christ. So there is a sense of unity that you and I have with Christ. And in order to keep our unity together, it takes work. We gotta work at it. Make every effort to do so. I just think in terms of a real practical sense, like we're getting closer to starting to meet together again in person. And all of you are going to have all different kinds of opinions about what that should look like, how much hand sanitizer we should have, how much Lysol wipes we should have. Should we wear masks? Should we not wear masks? Should I judge them if they don't wear a mask? Should I not? You're going to have all of these ideas. No, no, no. We're going to make every effort toward our unity. We're going to work together to be unified in the spirit. And it's so much more than just what we're experiencing in COVID-19. There's so much more that Paul has in store. Make allowance, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the spirit and bind yourselves together in peace. Again, this is not a peace you can just manufacture. You can't just muster it up. This is a peace, as we're reminded by Daniel, that Christ is our peace. We look to Christ as the source of our peace. And Jesus even says, blessed are the peacemakers. Take some work. You've got to make this together. Be part of making peace. And then lastly, why? Why is Paul telling the Ephesian church to do all of these things? I want to read this last section. And I'm just going to reread the verses. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. So there's something that's interesting about what Paul is doing here. Uh, there's something that the Greeks would have understood that's called triads. Triads. You get the threes in there. And there was a way that they learned in Greek society, in the ancient world. Not everybody had access to, you know, all different kinds of books or scrolls or whatever. So they had to learn through a different method. And so they would often teach in triads, in threes, or at least groups of threes. And so you might say something in threes so that somebody else could memorize it. And if they memorized it, then they could learn it better. Well, it's believed that Paul is doing that same thing here. He wants them to memorize this very important piece of what they need to know to preserve their unity. And so you see it. We see one body, one spirit, one hope. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. God is over all, in all, and through all. He has three groups of threes. So they can memorize this. It's almost as if Paul is saying, hey, look, there's a whole lot of stuff that we covered in chapters one, two, and three. 
But in case you forget any of it, I want you to memorize this section so that if at any point you get distracted away from unity, that you can remember your oneness. One body, one spirit, one hope. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. God is over all, in all, and through all. Remember this. Get this down. Memorize it so that you can keep your unity. This is incredibly important that they get this in them, in their hearts, in their souls, in their minds, so they can remember who God is, who they are, and now who they all are together as a community. Paul's turned a corner in the letter. He's going to talk about the importance of what it means to be the church. He's told them how God works. He's told them how each individual works because of Jesus and because of the power of the Holy Spirit. But now, because they have merged together as one body, the church, now they need the tools to preserve that body, to preserve their unity, to preserve their oneness. What does this mean for us? How do we do this? What do you think this means for us? You can even type something in the comments after hearing everything that we've talked about up to this point. What does this mean for us and for our unity? When I became new at driving, when I first learned how to drive, I didn't know everything there was to know about the car that I had. I didn't know all of the indicator lights and what they meant. But over time, I realized that there's at least three that I should memorize. The check engine light, the, the low tire pressure air light, and then the empty gas light was probably the most important one. I needed to remember those. I memorized those because I didn't always have time to refer back to my manual. So if I memorized those, I figured I was good. Well, church, I want us to I want us to know our three indicator lights. I want us to know that we need, we need fuel in our tank. We need air in our tires. We need to check our engine from time to time. Maybe that means we need an oil change. Let me speak in specifics. Let me get really specific with you for just a moment. We need fuel in our tank, right? Here's what I want you to do. For the next week, to get fuel in your tank, I want you to go back and to read chapters 1, 2, and 3 of the letter to the Ephesians. Read over it. Be reminded of who God is and who you are, that you have been saved by grace and you can't earn it, but that he has work in store for you that he's already planned ahead of time. Be reminded of how God works and how you work. So that's the first one. Reread chapters 1, 2, and 3. Or maybe you want to try this. Pray every morning. And I want you to pray a very simple yet bold prayer. Pray this prayer. Holy Spirit, show me how I can make an effort to preserve unity. Show me how to make every effort toward unity. Just a simple one-sentence prayer. But I guarantee you, the Holy Spirit will show up. You need to have the courage to pay attention to it. He's going to show you things. Are you going to notice it? Or you could do this. 
Memorize the triads. Memorize those three groups of three. Memorize one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God who is overall in all and living through all. To be reminded of what this is about, to be reminded of our oneness. Pick any one of those three things to fill your tank. Or sometimes you might realize, if you're self-aware, you might realize that your tank is bone dry and you'll need to do all three of these things. It makes me think of a story. Several years ago, there was this person that I know, I won't say her name, but it rhymes with my wife. And um, she was driving our car and it was empty gas for like a long time. The light had come on, it had been dinging at her, and she just didn't pay attention to it. And granted, she's busy with three kids and driving them around, and sometimes you just get distracted. But it had gotten so bad to the point where she was pulling into a parking lot, and it just stopped. The car just turned off. It stopped working altogether. And she called me, and so what I had to do is I had to go to the gas station with my little gallon container that I had for my lawnmower and go fill it up with a gallon of gas and bring it to her and fill our van up. Even a gallon of gas wasn't enough to get it to start. It wouldn't even start. So I had to go back to the gas station, fill up a gallon again, and come back and fill up the van. It still didn't start after the second gallon. I had to go back and do it one more time and fill it with three gallons full of gas before the van would even start. See, sometimes in our faith, we get bone dry in our tank. And it's not just going to take one thing, just one moment of reading a scripture or just one prayer. It's going to take a whole lot to get restarted. We need fuel in our tank in order to keep going together as a church. Maybe you need air in your tires. What do I mean by that? Well, in the Old Testament, <clears throat> The Holy Spirit is often synonymous with breath, with air. See, we need the Holy Spirit, the sort of buoyancy to have the power to continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, you know what else happens? We start to grow in our understanding of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Two of those Paul talks about in this section that we already read. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with one another. Guys, if we don't have air in our tires, if you have flat tires and you try to get somewhere, you're just not going to. You're not going to get anywhere with flat tires in your car. Guess what? If you have a flat, spirit-filled life, we're not going to go anywhere as a church. We're not going to do anything of any significance. We need the Holy Spirit to continually fill us. And then lastly, sometimes the check engine light goes on. And sometimes that means you need to change your oil. You need to go get an oil change. And what do they do when they change your oil? Well, they take out the filter, they empty out any of the bad oil, the residue, or any of the leftover oil that can't be used anymore. And then instead, what they do is they put a new filter on, and then they put new oil into your engine. Think about it like this in terms of our spiritual lives. Think about it in terms of repentance. 
I need to get rid of the stuff that I think is important to me, but is actually destructive and old and turning into residue and gunk. I need to get rid of that and be refilled with the new. Specifically in the area of racial injustice. For those of you who look like me, we need to repent of our complicity in racism. We just do. We need to get rid of what we think we know, of what we think is important. We need to recognize the error of our ways, of our past, of our history, and relearn how to be the body of Christ. That's going to be costly. It's going to be painful. But we need to do this. Otherwise, we will not develop as a church. I'd say it this way. We will only be unified. We will only be a unified church to the extent that we are willing to make every effort to be unified. So I have two things, two options. One of them was already said by Nathan in the beginning of our gathering. Watch Table Talk Thursday this week. Tune in. Engage in the conversation. And understand what it is that we need to address so that we can move forward as a church. You could do that. You could also do this. I've already read this book, Color of Compromise. It's a much broader, a much more accurate history of how the church has actually been complicit in racism, in racial injustice. I want you to get this book. I want you to read it. We're doing this as a staff. We're going through this book as a staff together so that we continue to grow and to learn, to preserve our unity. I would highly recommend that you get this book and begin to learn a new education, a new history. We need fuel in our tank. We need air in our tires. And we might need an oil change. This is how we church, how we life church can begin to take action steps toward embracing what it is that Paul has called the church toward 2,000 years ago. And I have hope that we can do this. I'm optimistic that God, by his spirit, will help us do this. Here's the thing, though. If you keep driving your car without, without getting gas in your tank, without getting air in your tires, without getting an oil change, guess what? Eventually, you're going to break down. You're going to overheat. Your car is just going to stop altogether. Or even worse, if you're driving on the interstate at 75 miles an hour and something happens to your car, now it's not just you that you need to worry about. It's all of the people driving next to you that you need to worry about. See, in the same way, if we try to be the church without prayer, without scripture, without the Holy Spirit, without repentance, and without a faithful learning and understanding of those we are trying to get in proximity with. As a church, we're going to get burnt out. We're going to overheat. We're going to get tired of each other. We're going to become divisive. We might just even stop altogether. But I believe we can do this.
I believe we can do this. I believe you can be part of this work. You might need some help and that's okay. Sometimes your car, you get an indicator light that comes on and it's, and it's an issue that you yourself can't address. Guess what? You go to a mechanic, you go to an expert. In our faith, when things are going wrong, we need to surround ourselves with a mature, trusted, wise person who can speak into our life and help us to address the bigger changes that we might need to make in our lives. Lastly, I realize there's some of you who might be listening to this. And there's a a car, I'm speaking metaphorically still, there's a car you've been driving around and it doesn't work. The engine is breaking down and it's just not working for you anymore. Some of you might realize you need a completely new engine. Guess what? Here at Life Church, we are driven. Did you catch that? We are driven by new life. And guess where that new life is found? It is only found in the person of Jesus Christ. You will only ever experience new life if you give him your life. He'll give you that new engine that you need to truly drive on the highway of life. And not only just you yourself, but to drive on the interstate with others, to merge into the lives of other people. It should truly be a part of something great. To drive toward a destination that you and I, we call eternity where all of life is renewed, all of creation is renewed, it is made new. And we are all together as one in unity. If you don't know Jesus, but you want him in your life, I wanna invite you to pray along with me as I pray. And you could pray in your own words, pray in your own heart, the way that it makes sense to you, but talk to God and ask him to take over, to give you that new engine, to be powered by the Holy Spirit so that you can truly live life. Would you pray with me? God, I pray even as my voice starts to tire out and give way, God, that still somehow you would use my words in this message and your scripture, your promises to speak new life into all of us. God, I pray specifically for those who don't know Jesus. They've been driving around throughout their life, not knowing where to go, not knowing if their car is gonna work or not. And it hasn't taken them anywhere. If that's you, I'm going to invite you right now. Ask Jesus into your life. Ask him to make you new. Ask him to fill you with the Holy Spirit so that you can develop into the kind of person that God is ultimately calling you to be. Thank you again for listening. We hope you have a wonderful day.